0: Chapter 10 Rebuilding Takes Time For Who Has Despised the Day of Small Things? Zechariah 4.10 Depression can easily set in when you consider how far behind the humanists today's Christians are in various areas. We have a lot of lost ground to recover. For example, the three major networks are run by hardcore humanists. Most major publishing companies refuse to publish a genuinely Christian book. Christian schools often have to settle for curriculum materials developed by secular companies. Christian parents are often left with few choices when their children are ready to attend college. 86% of the news media personnel seldom or never attend religious services, and yet they are the primary source of news. The courts are hostile to religion in general and Christianity in particular. These facts could depress even the most optimistic Christian. We have lost a tremendous amount of ground over the last 150 years. It is going to take a long time to get it back. The only events that might speed up this timetable would be a mass revival, a revival of self-government under God. We have yet to hear of such a revival in modern history. Or a terrible catastrophe, a lost war, a plague, or both. In either case, Christians will be called upon to exercise responsibility under God as never before. But how will they train themselves in advance to exercise such responsibility in a culture that promises continued benefits without revival? What if they are not prepared to take responsibility? As the publishers of the Biblical Blueprint series asked themselves before they began the project, how do you sell responsibility to a modern Christian? What if a group of dedicated Christians were to buy their nation's most prominent newspaper? What difference would it make? Not much. Where would they find the reporters who understand biblical principles and who would write their articles from this perspective? Where would they find the advertising people who would recognize the pagan symbolism of advertisements? Would the editor even be willing to risk dropping the daily astrology column? Without an army of dedicated, well-trained, biblically self-conscious professionals, the ownership of the newspaper or television network or whatever would not mean very much. In fact, it would probably mean financial losses as the new owners floundered with the responsibilities of management. But we need to do more than buy a newspaper. We need to win the whole world to Jesus Christ, to get the whole world to acknowledge what is in fact the case, that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have a big job ahead of us, but what encourages me is Zechariah 4.10. Beginning to do something is the main thing. Being big enough to do something is never an issue in the Bible. The giants did not seem to bother Joshua and Caleb, Goliath was no problem for David, and faith the size of a mustard seed is all the Christian needs to move a mountain. Civilizations come and go, but the kingdom of God goes on forever. This is the point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the human colossus. Kingdoms built on the shaky foundation that man is sovereign cannot last. Pick up any history book and you can read about the demise of every empire-building civilization. They are dust on the cosmic scales of God's justice. Christians have lost sight of the stone cut without hands that became a mountain that filled the earth, Daniel 2.35. For some reason, we just cannot seem to believe that Jesus, through his redeemed people, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Compare 1 Peter 2.5. We have convinced ourselves that defeat is the only option for the church. The only hope is retreat in the face of a creeping secularism. Maybe if things get real bad, God will rapture us out of this mess. Unbelief and Defeat It is interesting to note that every time there was consideration of retreat in the face of opposition, the people of God were rebuked for their unbelief. For example, when the twelve spies were sent out to Canaan, God promised them that the land would be theirs. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan that I am going to give to the sons of Israel, Numbers 13.2. You know the story. Ten of the spies came back with a report steeped in unbelief. Joshua and Caleb believed God. Sure, there were giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb never denied this. So what? God is the Lord. The promise was made. The land was theirs. Giants are nothing more than a minor and temporary inconvenience. Forty years were wasted in the wilderness because the people chose to believe the report of the unbelieving spies. The giants turned out to be whimpering dogs. When two spies were sent out to Jericho 40 years later, Rahab told us real story. I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did in Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Joshua 2, 8-11, New International Version There is little difference between the humanist of Rahab's day and the humanist of our day. They are just as frightened as the residents of Jericho were. But today's Christians are unwilling to believe this. Any more than Joshua's generation was willing to believe it. And so, Christians have sat on the sidelines of life. Waiting for God to bail them out. Do you remember what God did to Joshua's generation? He did not bail them out. He waited for them to die. And then he allowed Joshua and Caleb to lead the next generation to victory. Numbers 14, 21-23, Joshua 15, 13-19. Selling Fear There is an old rule for fundraising letters. You need to sell either greed or fear. Most cause-oriented groups find it easier to sell fear. Or it's corollary, outrage you can tell a great deal about any organization by finding out what sorts of fears motivate the people who send it money. You can do this by reading the organization's fundraising letters. What is scaring humanists in the United States these days? Nuclear war? AIDS? The Republican Party? No, the first time in this century Christians are scaring them. A recent fundraising letter from author Isaac Asimov president of the American Humanist Association, shows that humanists are running scared. Humanism is an ethical, rational outlook that has time and science on its side. If there is to be a future for humanity, it will be because our outlook, humanism, kept back the present tide of irrationalism and superstition, Christianity. The AHA wants to raise $100,000 to fight Christianity. This is money that can be used to spread the message of humanisms further than it has been spread before, bringing in thousands of new members. Our philosophy has reason on its side. Why are these fundraising letters being sent out? Yes, that's right, to raise funds. Bureaucracy lives. But what I really mean is, what is the official reason that the fundraisers are using to justify people sending in money to them? For the first time in over a century, humanists are facing the disintegration of their man-centered worldview. They need thousands of humanistically minded people to make the AHA the strongest possible force for the rational human mind we have in the Americas. They realize that they may be on the way out. The Democrats are afraid of the Republicans, right? Not quite. They are afraid of Christians who are getting into politics and who apparently are joining the Republican Party instead of the Democrats. A Democratic National Committee fundraising letter written by Paul J. Kirk Jr. wrote this about Christian involvement in the political arena. This letter stated the following. 1. The idea that a Christian like Pat Robertson was running for presidency was very frightening. 2. Pat Robertson is an ultra-fundamentalist. 3. Pat Robertson is one of the most radical right-wing leaders in America. 4. Pat Robertson is one of the most powerful public figures in America today. 5. According to Mr. Kirk, Pat Robertson is beginning to worry the leaders of both the Democratic and Republican parties. Mr. Kirk writes that he couldn't believe that this relatively unknown man could be a major, if not leading, candidate for president. Yet, this unknown is somehow one of the most powerful public figures in America today. How could an unknown be so powerful? What bothers him is that someone powerful is a political unknown. This is what scares the humanists to death. They see a Christian leader has gained what appears to be national political power, but he has done this outside the normal secular humanistic channels of two power. When Jimmy Carter ran for president in 1976, people were saying, Jimmy who? But Jimmy Carter was handpicked, a member of David Rockefeller's trilateral commission. He only appeared to be a political unknown, but Pat Robertson really is an unknown, unknown to the ways of political compromise, special deals, and political debts to be paid. He hasn't paid his political dues, and what worries the professional politicians is the possibility that he will pay his dues mostly to Bible-believing and morally conservative voters. He might vote their way, not humanism's way. This scares them. Pat Robertson is the head of a major satellite television network, the president of a university, and his book, The Secret Kingdom, was on the New York Times bestseller list. But he is not yet politically tested, meaning politically screened. This is what scares them. Power is only supposed to come to those who have played within the political system by the present leader's rules. After listing the impact that Pat Robertson has through his donor list, Television Network, Mr. Kirk makes this statement. But his greatest threat is not his powerful organization. It is the enormous political muscle of the religious right. So then, Pat Robertson is not only perceived threat. All Christians who hold to certain fundamental beliefs are the enemies of the dominant humanist political faith. Why are these self-described humanists frightened when they learn that Christians are getting active in every area of life? There are probably as many reasons as there are people opposed to Christian activism— but at the heart of all these reasons, there is one. Those who deny the regenerating work of God's Holy Spirit as the transformer of men and women from the inside out see politics as their common allies, the courts and their public schools as the new gods. For the humanist, politics is the new Messiah. When the Christian says, there is another king, Jesus, Acts 17:7, 7, he is accused of blasphemy and worse, unbelief. Why Christians Should Get Involved. The people in Gideon's day saw politics as a solution to their problems. Judges 8, 23. If they just had a powerful king to rule over them, their problems would be solved. When Abimelech murdered his opposition, 9:1 through 6 he promised the people security if they would only follow him. While there is the offer of shade, salvation, it is an illusion that brings with it a choking tyranny. Verse 15. When the lack of personal holiness corrupted the family, Judges 14 through 16, and priesthood, 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 17, 22 through 36, the people turned to the state for salvation, 1 Samuel 8. The Christian calls politics into question, not because it is an illegitimate fear of Christian activity, but because it is too often seen by people as the fundamental activity. Politics was never meant to save mankind, and it cannot save. While Christians are to redeem, buy back politics and the civil sphere of government, we are never to view political action as the sole solution to all our problems, or even the main solution. The purpose of Christians' involvement in politics ought to be more than the mere replacement of non-Christians with Christians. There are numerous things that civil government should not be doing that it is doing, and doing with the support of most voters. A civil government based on biblical law would mean a drastic reduction in its size and power and a return of jurisdiction to individuals, private enterprise, families, churches, and local civil governments. The church has awakened, at least some of the church has, to her responsibilities in the area of worldview thinking. Christians are beginning to realize that the Bible has answers, that the Bible addresses the world with specific solutions to seemingly perplexing problems. For the Christian, the Bible is a blueprint for building a Christian civilization. There are many Christians and non-Christians who do not like to think of the Bible in these terms. In fact, many are horrified at any suggestion that the world is in any way redeemable. They are content to ignore verses like, God so loved the world, John 3.16. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8.12 the Savior of the world, 4.42, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, one twenty nine. And how about this one? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, Revelation 11.15. Now, don't get me wrong. To say that the world is redeemed is not to say that the world can be made perfect. For example, the dead sinner is redeemed, but he is not perfect. Judiciously, the sinner stands before God as perfect because he has the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to him. He is not made righteous, he is declared righteous. This, however, does not exempt him from conforming his life more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. This process is called sanctification. God expects the redeemed sinner to conform his behavior to the commandments of God, though the effects of his sin nature will not be eradicated until he is raised imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15.42 The implications of such a life are evident. If the redeemed sinner can change his life through sanctification, then how can we deny that the world is destined for corruption? Isn't the redeemed sinner both salt and light in the world? Let's face it, wherever the gospel has changed individuals, it has changed civilizations. Just compare the Christian West with the paganism and cultural decline of other nations. But what about the advance of humanism? The answer is quite simple. The advance of humanism is the result of the retreat of Christianity. Just as a neglected garden will be overwhelmed by weeds, so a neglected area of responsibility will be overwhelmed by evil. Does Satan have more power than Christians? But what about the rise of demonic activity in our day? Many Christians point to this and say that this is proof that we're coming to the end of the world, meaning that the end of the church age. But there was always heightened demonic activity during Jesus' public ministry. Was this the end of the world? Yes, but not the end of the Christian world. It was the end of a demon-sponsored humanism, pharisaism, legalism, and Romanism. The pagans better understood the implications of Christianity than do many modern critics of civilization buildings. These men who have upset the world have come here also. Acts 17.6 Gary Norris' analysis of occultism and the New Age humanism shows that the rise of occultism takes place at the end of civilizations. This humanist civilization has spent spiritual capital, and its checks are bouncing. The decay of humanism has led to the revival of occultism. What we are witnessing is occult revival and cultural disintegration. What we may very well be witnessing is humanist civilization's dying gasp. The collapse of humanism and the stench of occultism bring with them certain opportunities for Christians. The world is looking for answers. The Christian, if he truly believes the Bible, has answers. Setting the agenda as we approach the 20th century should be the priority for all Christians. This will mean involvement. We are too often occupied with what man has done, and the whole time we deny what God is doing. The way Christians think and act you would suppose that Satan is more powerful than God. Satan has power, but it is limited by God. Even in the Old Testament era, Satan was restricted in the influence he could exert. Before Satan could afflict Job, he had to seek God's permission. Behold, all that he, Job, has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. Job 1.12 compare 2, six. Through it all, God received the glory, and Job was finally restored. Job 42.10-17 through 17. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples had authority and power over demons because Satan's power was partially grounded. When the seventy disciples returned from their mission, they remarked that even the demons are subject to us (Luke 10:17). How could this be? And he said to them, "I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you" (verses 17 through 18). Jesus tells the Pharisees that his casting out demons is the sign that the kingdom of God has come, displacing the enemy territory of Satan. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, Satan, fully armed guards his own household, his possessions are undisturbed, But when someone stronger, God, than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor, on that he had relied, and distributes his plunder, Satan's kingdom. 11.10-22 When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he made reference to the effect that Satan will have on his work, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. John 14.30 all the powers of hell would not be able to deter Jesus in the task that would soon energize the church to such an extent that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against her power. Upon this rock, the sure testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Matthew 16:18. The Apostle Paul, aware of the power of Rome and that many Christians would suffer at the hands of the state strengthen them with these words and the God of peace will soon crush satan under your feet Romans 16:20 these roman Christians could expect this soon by praying for it and carrying out their dominion task in every area of life the christian is able to spoil the works of the devil because of the limited power that satan has over believers he cannot touch a christian first john 5:18 his works have been destroyed first john 3:8 he must flee when resisted, James 4, seven, and he has been rendered powerless over believers, Hebrews 2:14. The above scriptural evidence is of no use if Christians assume incorrectly that Satan is now in control and that his controlling influence will continue. Of course, if Christians do nothing, we can expect Satan's kingdom to advance. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5:19. As long as Christians refuse to plant and water the seeds of the gospel in the world. The power of Satan over the world is temporary until the nations are discipled. Compare Matthew 28:18 through 20 Moreover, to say that Satan is in control of the governments of the world is to say that Christians have been irresponsible in transforming the civil realms of power according to the commandments of God. Christians have no excuse because God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and made public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, Jesus. Colossians 2.15 the crucifixion brought the false powers to light. Jesus has exposed the powers of darkness. Compare Luke one seventy nine, First 1 Corinthians four five six, Colossians one thirteen. They are in fact powerless over the kingdom of Jesus Christ. When the kingdom of God is compared with the kingdom of Satan, there is a radical difference. Satan's mask of deception has been torn from him. What looked like triumph for Satan and his followers, the resurrection showed to be folly the gates of satan's kingdom are vulnerable and will be battered down by the advancing church of jesus christ under the power of god's holy spirit working through obedient dominion oriented christians matthew 16:18 Victory for the people of God is certain, not because of their own strength, but because of the strength of the one whom they serve, even Jesus Christ, unto whom all power in heaven and earth has been given, and who is with his people always, even until the end of the age, Matthew 28:18 through 20 The Christian's hope is found in the resurrected Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of his Father. Present-day Christians are to know the present-day power of that resurrection and act upon it. Compare Philippians 3.10, Romans 6.5. If Satan doesn't have as much power as God does, then Satan's human followers also cannot have as much power as God's human followers do, unless the latter voluntarily renounce their responsibilities. If God's people are faithful, power will flow to them. Deuteronomy 28.1-14 It is time that we start to build a Christian civilization the question of time. One of the most debilitating doctrines of the church is the belief that Jesus is coming back soon, meaning man's concept of soon, and that the world is headed for inevitable destruction. There's nothing Christians should do to try to stop the inevitable. When Jesus' disciples asked him at the ascension if at that time he was restoring the kingdom to Israel, Jesus diverted their attention from final restoration to the work at hand, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, Acts 1, 6-8. In effect, Jesus was saying, Do not worry about God's timetable, it is already fixed. Busy yourself with the affairs of the kingdom. Some of the Thessalonian Christians were leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 While this may have little to do with a preoccupation with the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, it reminds us that God requires us to work regardless of external circumstances. Faithfulness is evaluated in terms of kingdom work. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes, Matthew 24:45 and 46. Jesus goes on to hint at the time and circumstances of his coming. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know, verse 50. Nowhere does scripture intimate that we should cease any aspect of kingdom work, even if we think Jesus' coming is near. George Ladd, a premillennial scholar, writes, The delay of the master made no difference to the true servant. He busied himself about his lord's business, but the master's delay induced the false servant to a sinful course of action. The lord's delay brought out the true character of his servants. Jesus related a parable to his disciples when they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, Luke 19.11. In Jesus' day, many of his disciples assumed the kingdom would arrive through a cataclysmic event with no effort on their part. Jesus told them through the parable, do business until I come back, verse 13. When the master finally returns, he will take an accounting those who made a profit on the money given by the master will be in authority over 10 and 5 cities, verses 17 through 19. The one who put the money away in a handkerchief, verse 20, not being industrious enough to put the money in the bank to collect interest, verse 23, loses everything, verse 24. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1834 through 1892, the great Baptist preacher and evangelist of the 19th century, shows how pessimism robs the church of its vitality and stunts its growth. David was not a believer in the theory that the world would grow worse and worse, and that the dispensations will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down, amid tenfold night, if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect. But we look for a day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior, shall worship thee alone, O God, and shall glorify thy name. The modern notion has greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions, and the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. It neither consorts with prophecy, honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Far hence be it driven. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. First 1 Corinthians 15.58 Our Inheritance Grows Until Christians began to spread the gospel into the Roman Empire, the ancient world had never heard of linear, straight-line time. The ancient pagan world, from savages to f- sophisticated philosophers, believed in circular time. Time is cyclical, they argued. It is going nowhere. There was no beginning. There will be no end. Christians challenged this view of time. They preached Christ and him crucified. Christ came in the midst of time, they said. God created the world. Adam rebelled. And now Christ has come in the midst of time to die and rise from the dead. Overcoming sin. His resurrection points to a future resurrection. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 15. Thus we have hope for the future. Only Christians had such hope. Therefore, only Christians had enough confidence in the future to preach a doctrine of linear time. God told his people that their earthly efforts have meaning in time and eternity. What we think, say, and do has consequences for us and also for history. And we know that the good that we do becomes a legacy to other Christians who follow us. Because we have legitimate faith in the future, we can confidently use other people's gifts to us out of the past. And we know that in the future, our good gifts will be put to good use by our spiritual heirs. Not so the God-haters. Their gifts will be either cut off or else be inherited by God's people. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, Proverbs 13.22. Our God shows loving-kindness to thousands of generations to those who keep his commandments, Exodus twenty six. The text in Exodus twenty says that he shows loving kindness to thousands, but most commentators agree that the comparison is between the three or four generations that he patiently endures sinners, Exodus twenty five, and the thousands of generations of kindness that he shows to the righteous. We can build up spiritual capital, economic capital, educational capital, and political capital over many generations, This is our task before God. Slow growth over many generations is the proper approach. What is God's way for his people? Hard work and thrift. Satan, knowing that his time is short, Revelation 12.12, recommends a different program for his human followers. Huge risks, borrowed money to fund big deals, and going for broke. A few generations is all he can expect, unless Christians voluntarily give him more time by retreating into cultural irrelevance. What we need now is not a string of miracles. Miracles are helpful, but what we need is a revival. We need to preach and believe the whole counsel of God. We need a full-orbed gospel that offers comprehensive salvation. We need healing, not just spiritual and physical healing, but cultural healing. We need the doctrine of the resurrection. The resurrection, restoration, and reconstruction of every area of life to the glory of God. We need to fulfill the Dominion Covenant of Genesis 1, 26-28. To subdue the earth to the glory of God, we need the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the discipling of the nations. And how can we get this? By simple covenantal faithfulness. By doing our normal daily jobs well. And then by doing a lot more. We have God's law, the tool of dominion. We have his Holy Spirit to empower us. We have Calvary behind us, which dealt a mortal blow to Satan. After all, can we Christians seriously believe that Satan is more powerful after the cross than before it? That makes no sense. No, if we do our work, we will be blessed. So Satan blinds us. He tells us we don't have enough time to get our work done. He persuades us that Christians' efforts are not sufficient to please God. He somehow has convinced a whole generation of Christians that they will leave nothing to their children and grandchildren because the church will be raptured out of the world and out of history before their children and grandchildren can inherit or at least put their inheritance to work. Satan has won a temporary cultural victory by shortening the time perspectives of his enemies. The best example that I can think of is the one Gary North always cites. The communists believe that an overnight revolution is the only event that can save society from evil capitalism. But they work patiently for generations, eroding their enemies' faith in capitalism, subverting every institution, and planning for revolution, nation by nation. In contrast, those Christians who have spoken for the church historically have usually believed in the steady progress of the gospel. They have opposed radical revolution— They have had faith in the future. Nevertheless, in our day, they have dreamed of miracles and prayed for the rapture to remove them from their misery. They have adopted Satan's faith in short-run miracles, national political miracles. We must elect a Christian leader who will throw the rascals out once and for all. And the miracle of the rapture. Christians have shortened their time perspective, and Satan has convinced his followers that they have all the time in the world. Satan has been winning for two centuries because of this. It is time to call a halt to this temporary period of Christian defeat. The way we do it is to lengthen our time perspectives and then get to work. Summary God tells us that it is our task to subdue the earth to his glory. This will take the cumulative efforts of all his people. No single generation will get all the credit. Step by step, line upon line, here a little and there a little. His kingdom in heaven marches forward, steadily manifesting itself in the kingdoms of this world. We are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Because we have stopped praying that prayer, or no longer believe its words, we have given up too much ground and authority to the satanic enemy. We have in effect despised the day of small beginnings. We have looked at the task ahead of us, and have given up, overwhelmed by its magnitude. We have forgotten that after we do our work and die, there will come generations after us, the battle for the universe takes place here on earth, not in the grave or in heaven. The battle is spiritual and ethical. It is fought in history. How is it to be fought? Not by power alone, certainly. Not by politics alone. By the preaching of the gospel and obedience to his law. In summary, 1. Christians are far behind the humanists in every area of life. 2. 2. Short of major catastrophes, it will take a long time to regain this lost ground. 3. Christians are not ready to exercise responsibility in the major institutions, education, entertainment, government. 4. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God goes on. 5. Retreat by Christians is a sign of unbelief. 6. Joshua and Caleb alone recommended an offensive against the Canaanites. They alone entered the land 40 years later. 7. The giants of the land humanists can be defeated. 8. Humanist fundraising letters now reveal their fear of Christians in politics. 9. Christians are the main enemies of the humanists today. 10. Politics is too often seen as the fundamental activity. 11. The state's authority and operations should be drastically cut back. 12. The Bible should be our guide in this chopping block process. 13. Many Christians don't want to think of the Bible as a guide to government. 14. Non Christians are equally hostile. 15. The redeemed sinner is to be salt and light to the corrupt culture. 16. Humanism has advanced as Christianity has retreated. 17. Satan doesn't have more power than God. 18. Satan's followers don't have more power than God's followers, unless God's followers abdicate. 19. God requires us to work, no matter how little time we have remaining. 20. Pessimism concerning the future has robbed the church of its vitality. Spurgeon. 21. The Bible teaches growth over time, generation after generation. 22. The ancient pagan world believed in historical cycles. 23. The Christians should believe in the earthly future, so he should be able to pass on the gifts of the past. 24. The God-haters will be cut off before they see the full development of their culture. 25. Capital in the broadest sense is to be built up over many generations. 26. Satan's followers cannot expect to succeed for many generations unless Christians hand over the civilization to them. 27. We need revival, not miracles. 28. We need the whole counsel of God. 29. We can get this if we work hard and long, so that God can safely send our culture a spiritual awakening. 30. The communists believe in overnight revolution, and they work for decades to bring it about. 31. Christians say they believe in the long haul, but give up politically after a short time, trusting instead in an overnight victory in a national election. 32. We are to subdue the earth one step at a time, one generation at a time.